1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview.
0: Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Carrie Lee Merritt, an independent historian based in Atlanta, Georgia. She is the author of Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, published by Cambridge University Press, and co-editor of the forthcoming collection, Reviving Southern Labor History, Race, Class and Power. Carrie Lee Merritt, welcome to Working History. Thanks for having me, Beth. Sure. Your book, Masterless Men, looks at a group in the pre-Civil War South commonly referred to as poor whites. Can you start us off today by talking a little bit about who these poor whites were and where they fit into the larger socioeconomic dynamics of the Antebellum South?
2: Sure. So... um, The classic definition of poor whites really comes from um, Charles Bolton, um, and he classified them as owning neither land nor slaves. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, when you're looking um, through sources and actually doing the work, sometimes it's absolutely impossible to know whether or not somebody owned, you know, a couple of paltry acres where they're not really producing anything. So there are times that, you know, people slip in and out of the definitions. Um, Jeff Foray then proposed a more sociological definition that really was more kind of class based Do people, you know, consider themselves in this poor white class. Um, are they classified as poor whites by other Southerners? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's, um, it still is a little bit of a slippery definition, but landless, slaveless um, I generally when I can find these people in the census records, which is oftentimes hard to do, um, I try to look also at personal property and classify them as owning less than a hundred dollars in personal property mm-hmm. according to census records. Um, But so I look at the Deep South um, in my book, and I don't include Louisiana because it is so different um, in terms of a racial caste system and also in terms of a legal system. Several Mm -hmm. of my chapters deal with legal history. Mm -hmm. But so I look at South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and those states all have somewhere between you know 35% to about 50% um, of the population is enslaved. Mm-hmm. And South Carolina, of course, has the largest percentage with um, over half the state being slaves. And I think that this is a really important designation that the Deep South is different Um, in a kind of, uh, social control and a kind of labor control way than the rest of the South, because you have such high levels, high proportions of slaves. When you, when you're approaching that 50% level, when half your society is basically enslaved, um, it really changes, I think the structure of, of the way that slaveholders have to um, control society. Mm-hmm. And so then you're left with, you know, about half the population is white, or a little bit more than half the population. And out of that, White population, um, I argue, and I have an entire index at the end of the book, um, where I really go into um, how bad these census records are in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, particularly the 50s and 60s, Um, but they're just completely undercounting people, um, especially rural people, especially immigrants, um, but a lot of these poor whites. And so my point is, you know, even in modern day times, when we have all the um all the tools at our advantage to produce a very accurate census we still don't get under about 5% of people that are not counted mm-hmm. some five to 10%. Um, and so it's even higher back then, you know, Mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. the system is run in such a haphazard way. Um, so I argue that poor whites probably comprise about a third, um, a solid third of the white population in this deep South area. Um, and their rate, their rates are actually probably rising in the 1850s as you've got a lot of, um, poor white immigrants coming over and settling in these southern port cities. Um, but so if you count poor whites for about one-third of the white population, then you've also got one-third of the population in the Deep South were slaveholders mm-hmm. or belonged to slaveholding families. And mm-hmm. so then one-third would be classified as yeomen who held land or were from the middling classes but you know didn't necessarily own slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's the best way to show how they fit in
0: in a socioeconomic way. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what were the basic living realities of this group of poor whites? Uh, you, you mentioned that they didn't have a lot of uh, they didn't have any perhaps property. They didn't have a lot of uh, a lot of, you know, capital. They didn't have a lot of stuff, basically. So so what was what were their lives like?
2: Well, the Deep South is an incredibly, incredibly um, unequal uh, economy, you've got a great deal of wealth inequality. Um, Basically in 1860, you've got slightly more than a thousand families in all of the South owned um, about half of the Deep South's wealth, mm-hmm. and wealth is becoming more and more concentrated in the lead up to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, so the basic living realities are pretty stark for the poorest people. Um, they, they Most of them live in little log cabins. A lot of them are squatting on land, um, or they could rent land from slaveholders, you know, tenant, farm. Some of them were sharecroppers, even um, uh, food. There were definitely. Definite times of food insecurity, a lot mm-hmm. of them go through periods of hunger, um, begging from neighbors for food. You know, um, most people that have looked at this think that their diets were not all that different materially than slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, very heavily corn diet, you know, supplemented with pork and, and some meat when they could get it, um, potatoes and, you know, the few greens that would grow around their little cabins. Um And because of slavery and the way that there were not enough jobs for these people um, and the men would constantly have to move around and search for work and search for jobs, it actually led to very fractured family lives. Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of short term marriages and these are not marriages in the um, religious or even state sanctioned sense. These mm-hmm, are, mm-hmm. you know, just relationships. Um, and they're living with different, you know, different people every few years, whatever would work out economically for them.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what sorts of work were they doing? Were they typically wage farmhands? Uh, you had mentioned a few sharecropping, um, you know, what did they do basically to, to earn a living?
2: Well, there were definitely some that were, um, you know, sharecropping and tenant farming, but, uh, all of these people basically had, um, had their history in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so they had all worked the land in some sense uh, or another historically. And what you see happening in the uh, 1840s and 1850s is there's all these slaves are being brought down from the upper South to the lower South. Uh, over 800,000 slaves are brought from the upper South to the lower South. And as they're, taking over all these jobs, all these agricultural jobs in the South, um, white laborers are being pushed out of agriculture largely. Mm -hmm. And so I think you kind of, uh, they start falling into two groups. And one group is basically the constantly unemployed who just give up um, looking for jobs. And they basically are able to live off the land, hunting, fishing, um, you know, growing, you know, little, patches of potatoes and whatnot. And then a lot of them start supplementing this by stealing and trading with slaves in the underground economy. Mm -hmm. Um, but then you have this other group of people that are still trying to hold on, um, and starting to work in non-agricultural work on, um, you know, digging ditches, building roads, building railroads, um, mining, um, working in factories. But so a lot of these people actually are starting to be called mechanics and in, mm-hmm. in the Deep South during this time. If you're not working in agriculture, if you're working with any kind of tools outside of agriculture, you're referred to as a mechanic. And so I just want to make that designation because that will become more important um, as we talk about the work further.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, how did they participate or remain on the margins, then of larger white society in in a cultural sense, it seems in an economic sense, are definitely not part of the the sort of dominant slave holding and even land holding, um, you know, society. What what are they doing in terms of in terms of the cultural side of things?
2: Um, that's absolutely right. I, I try to make the case that they are definitely not like slaveholders and not even like the middling class whites, um, in the society. So education is a big factor. There are basically no public schools in any of these deep South States prior to the civil war or prior to reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Um, and so many of the children are, or many of poor whites are completely illiterate, um, And you see this when you really get into legal records, how few of them can actually write. Maybe they could read a little bit, but, uh, you know, nothing that would make them anywhere close to an educated person in the upper upper middling classes. Mm -hmm. Um, Religion, I from every record I could find there, they tended to be not that religious. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, perhaps they believed in Jesus Christ, perhaps they believed in some form of Christianity, but largely due to the fact that they kind of lived on the fringes of the towns and societies. And because um, they were very socially segregated from other whites, they didn't seem to attend church very much. And part of this could also be to a labor thing. Sunday Mm -hmm. was, of course, back then the working man's only day off. Mm -hmm. Um, and that leads me into another factor is that uh, what all um, what often goes along with poverty is uh, some form of substance abuse, you know, some form of escapism. And with poor whites, you definitely see this very strong culture of complete alcoholism, Mm.
3: um,
2: where people are just going, both men and women and children are going on benders, you know, for months at a time Mm -hmm. where you wake up, the first thing you do is drink. Um, and because of a lot of this alcoholism, um, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of domestic abuse. Um, mining some of these coroner's reports is just, heartbreaking, you know, to see the way that these children and women are dying at the hands of their husbands and fathers. Mm -hmm.
0: So how did slaveholding or upper class or even middling class whites talk about these poor whites and their integration into the larger southern economy? Were they concerned? Were they did they just ignore them? How, you know, was there any dialogue going on um, about them?
2: They were definitely concerned. But and it's actually harder to find, um, source material where they express concern publicly mm-hmm. because of course their, um, the characterization of the North as being, you know, a wage slave society,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: um, and using white laborers as wage slaves, because if they had actually acknowledged how many poor whites were, were languishing in cycles of poverty in the South, that would have negated that entire argument.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, they um, definitely were concerned about them and they just kind of looked at them with a lot of disdain. Um, at the very minimum, they considered them a nuisance interacting with their slaves and, and stealing, you know, their livestock and crops. Um, but a lot of them, and especially as you see into the 1850s, um, did consider poor whites dangerous. Mm Um, and they really start trying to implement different ways to segregate them from blacks. Um, and I even argue that they thought of them as kind of racially distinct, you know, mm-hmm. not, not anywhere near, um, being black, but they were not quite white. Um,
3: mm-hmm.
2: they're not included in this white privilege. Um, they're always looked at as somehow racially inferior. A lot of times they're referred to as yellow, um, uh, or swarthy. So, um, I mean, you definitely see that uh, slaveholders, Uh, saw them almost as a distinct um, class. Mm -hmm.
0: And how did they see themselves? Did they see themselves also as as distinct or did they, uh, you know, did they see themselves as as part of the larger white society?
2: That is a very hard point to argue because there are basically no records of Mm -hmm. Or whites talking about this during the time, but I've used the Tennessee Veterans questionnaires very extensively, and uh, even you know relied on the WPA slave narratives Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to really try to find evidence. And it looks like, to me, it absolutely looks like there was class consciousness. I mean, these men are talking about the fact that their fathers would never vote for slaveholders, that their fathers that they couldn't stand it, They they could never find work because of these slaveholders and what slavery was doing. So I argue that there is a class consciousness but that because the way society um, is so overwhelmingly rural that outside of cities and towns it's incredibly hard for them to do anything about it Um, Mm -hmm. and and then just the fact that slaveholders dominated every aspect of society that even when they did try to do things, even when they did try to band together with slaves, it was easily crushed by a very, um, overzealous criminal justice
0: system combined with this kind of vigilante violent society. So let's talk a little bit more about that, about the criminal justice system. Um, can you tell us how it functioned first of all, more broadly in the antebellum South and then more specifically how it functioned for poor whites? Sure. Um, It is, uh, the criminal justice system
2: is kind of overwhelming in the Deep South. Um, They are locking people up all the time. Um, And outside of Louisiana, uh, the vast uh, majority of people locked in jails and in penitentiaries in the Deep South are poor whites. Um, A lot of them are immigrants. A lot of them are Irish, some German. Um, And the primary reason that I think the criminal justice system is so overzealous is that slaveholders are trying to keep poor whites from disrupting slavery. They're trying to keep them away from their slaves. Um, they didn't need criminal justice for blacks. They just whipped them. You know, mm-hmm. they, they didn't need to jail blacks. They, they didn't want to give up that labor.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So you see all of these, um, different sheriff's departments and different towns and cities starting to really crack down on these behavioral, you know, quote crimes in the 1830s, 40s and 50s. And so vagrancy is, is a big thing because vagrancy basically you don't need to commit a crime. You don't need to be doing anything. Literally you can be doing nothing. that's, that's a version of the crime in the mm-hmm. statute. Mm-hmm. You're doing nothing, standing on a highway, they can arrest you. And I look at these Behavioral crimes like gambling, drunkenness, uh, selling liquor, you know, lewd behavior. And these poor whites are being locked up for these, these crimes at overwhelming rates and then being jailed for long periods of time. But I also make the point that they're still being jailed for debt. Most historians think that um, jailing people for debt ends in the Jacksonian period. Mm-hmm. But in the Deep South, they are there's this thing called Ka-Saw. Um, capius ad satisfaciendum, I believe, this um, old English law Mm -hmm. that gives slaveholders the power to jail people for very small amounts of money. And a lot of times these people are being jailed for the debt that they've incurred uh, being jailed and arrested. Mm -hmm. Um, So you see kind of how that is applicable to many of our modern-day problems. Um, I also make the point that – they're selling these criminals to the highest bidder mm-hmm. um overwhelmingly for bastardy but also um you know any other kind of uh, larceny or or small petty crimes they're literally auctioning these people off on the courthouse steps mm-hmm. and selling them for unfree labor they're also binding out children and they're whipping whites publicly mm-hmm. on the courthouse steps um, for small amounts of uh, of larceny. And women, this is mostly in South Carolina, women stopped being whipped in the early 1850s. Um, but men were still being, white men were still being whipped up throughout the Civil War.
0: Mm, okay. How were poor whites participating then politically in the bomb South? We talked about culture, we talked about criminal justice economically. What were they doing or not to exert any political agency.
2: Well, um, I th- I think that any political agency is kind of spotty at best, um, and probably dependent upon you know being in the right place at the right time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But slaveholders overwhelmingly controlled everything about elections, from you know who could vote to who could run. Um, and I think it's important to note that there are still poll taxes mm-hmm. in the Annabellum South that prevented lots of poor whites from voting. There are residency restrictions that when you're moving around um, in search for work, you can be um, um, disenfranchised that way very easily. Um, but so when you come to the actual election itself, it's important to remember that back then a lot of these elections are held, um, through the process of what they call Viva voce voting by voice. Mm -hmm. Um, you're literally voting in front of, you know, the whole town in Mm -hmm. front of the most important men in the town, the most important slaveholders. There's no privacy in who you're voting for. And so Mm -hmm. if you're going up there to vote and you're sitting in front of men who control every aspect of your County, including, you know, what land you can rent, um, um, what jobs you can get. Um, I think it's important to to think about that psychologically, what that would do to your vote. Um, but there's also a an element of a much more sinister controlling um, where you're, you know, taking people at the point as we're getting closer to the 18 to 1860. They're literally, you know, taking people at the point of a gun um, to vote. Mm hmm. But I think far more commonly, it is more that they round up all these men. The slaveholders round up these men, get them blind drunk, you know, throw them a big barbecue, transport them to the polls. And, you know, that's That's an easy way to get people to, to vote the way you want.
0: And what factors ultimately then bring what I guess you could characterize as a class crisis between white Southerners to a head? in the late 1850s and into 1860, 61, when talk of secession really begins to build?
2: Sure. Um, So I briefly mentioned that there's kind of a labor restructuring for whites as they're moving out into um, jobs outside of agriculture Mm -hmm. um, in the 1830s, 40s. Um, Something important to remember is that Slaves are starting to be hired out for these same sorts of jobs in the 1840s, particularly because cotton is not doing so well in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. And so they're um, training slaves to, to be these skilled workers and to go out and kind of work in a lot of ways, kind of independently. Mm-hmm. Um, and white laborers start getting very angry about this, about the competition with slave labor and other jobs. And, but it's not, it's not all race based because mm-hmm. you see all sorts of petitions to, um, governors, uh, where they're arguing against having to compete with men who are, you know, making bricks in the state penitentiary. Mm-hmm. So they just don't want to compete with unfree labor. And they, they, They start becoming more and more militant in the fact that they're unwilling to compete with slaves and free blacks and that if slaveholders don't start doing something to protect their rights as laborers, a lot of them start threatening to withdraw their
0: support for slavery. And so this then contributed to or uh, was a, a mitigating factor as the South marched towards secession?
2: Oh, well, I think it definitely contributed to it. Um, it starts really creating a crisis um, in slaveholders' minds about what do we do with all of these militant white laborers. Mm-hmm. And the other factor to consider is these, uh, you know, Irish, mainly famine Irish immigrants are pouring in during the, these years. And even though most immigrants, of course, are going to the north, when you look at the rates of increase in immigration in these Southern port cities. And of course we must remember that the secessionist impulse originated in Charleston. Mm-hmm. You know, Charleston has this great influx of white, white immigrant laborers in the 1840s and fifties and slaveholders are really wondering you know, what to do with these people because you can't control them the same way you control slaves.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how did these tensions then carry over into the war and ultimately impact the Confederate war effort?
2: Well, I argue that um, most of these poor whites are Mm anti-Confederates in the Deep South. You know, Mm -hmm. some of them are probably Unionists, but a lot of them don't even know enough to really understand the causes for war, what's going on. and so they're more anti confederate um that's a more accurate characterization i think because they just wanted to be left alone they just mm-hmm. wanted to be left alone to be on their little farms to to you know drink when they wanted to drink and you know be happy and did not want to be conscripted to fight for slaveholders economic interests something that actually hurt their own livelihoods mm-hmm. and so you don't see a lot of a lot of um records Talk about not seeing poor whites in the ranks of the Confederacy actually until after 1862, when of course um, there's Confederate conscription, mm-hmm. and then you have you start having these incredibly high rates of desertion, and um, Ella Alon argues that most deserters are very poor. Mm-hmm. And then you also have this other group of, of just layouts, people who are hiding out from the conscription officers who are hiding out from the Confederacy the entire war. They're called mossbacks because they, they're hiding out in caves and, um, you know, out in the woods where moss literally starts growing on their backs. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I argue that all of these different things actually help lead to the Confederacy's demise.
0: At the end of your analysis you argue that in many ways, the abolition of slavery and the promises of emancipation leading to a freeing or lead to, I should say, a freeing of the region's poor whites. Um, it wasn't just a moment of abolition for slaves, but also in a broader sense of freeing for the poor whites in the South. So two questions related to that. First, how, how is this so? How so? And second, why is this important for our our understanding more broadly of Reconstruction and then the emergent class and race relations in the post-war South more generally.
2: Sure, um, and that's a great question, and I, I started out this project not thinking, you know, how far I'd take it past the Civil War, but as I as I got into it, I realized that. prior to about the 1950s, historians used to write about emancipation as being a dual emancipation, as freeing not only blacks, but poor whites in the Mm -hmm. South. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it really, it's a really good point, because uh, the most fundamental thing is that they're finally in, you know, quote, a free labor economy. They're finally not in a slavery ridden economy. So at least they have the chance to do something about their own livelihoods. Now, of course, we know poverty re-ensnares and things don't turn out um, so well for them, but at least there's a chance. So, and the second thing I would talk about also is education. As I mentioned, there were no public schools. Well, after the efforts of the Freedmen's Bureau and everything like that, and uh, the new governments in Reconstruction, there are actually public schools throughout the Deep South. So that also elevates their position in society. Mm -hmm. Third, I talk about the Homestead Acts. And in my very first chapter, I actually argue that the Homestead Acts were originally proposed by poor white Southerners or lower middling class Southerners who wanted land, who wanted to get away from the stain of slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, Homestead Acts are never passed because slaveholders were against them. And as soon as the South seceded, then they were passed in 1862 under Lincoln and there was a Southern homestead act in 1866. And so, um, poor whites were able to benefit from these acts, essentially getting a free piece of land.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then fourth, I also argued that the criminal justice system basically changes who it targets in the deep South. Instead of targeting poor whites, it's now targeting blacks and the penalties are much harsher and much more deadly as we know. Um, so essentially, you know, it, it, black emancipation does free poor whites in several ways, and blacks end up taking poor whites' place at the bottom of free society.
0: Is this a moment in which uh, the upper class and and more middle class whites begin to embrace? Maybe that's not the right word, but embrace this group of former poor whites in this in this free you know free labor milieu.
2: I definitely think so. I think, um, uh, you know, somebody needs to write the book still, but I think there's a, a definite shift in the early period of reconstruction where there's still a chance for biracial coalition. When you mm-hmm. see some of these early black politicians, especially, they're talking to crowds of poor whites and blacks together. They're talking in terms of labor solidarity. They're talking, they're talking about the rights of blacks and poor whites, but You know, because of the vigilante violence of different groups and the KKK and the racist, vicious criminal justice system, um, there are all these factors that kind of conspire against any kind of biracial coalition. And it does start unraveling. I think you see, you know, certainly by later Reconstruction, there's more of an alignment of all whites together, um, you know, in white supremacy against
0: blacks. Well, Carrie Lee Merritt, you've given us a a lot to think about. And so I thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Working History. Great. Thank you so much, Beth. Thanks again to Carrie Lee Merritt, author of Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, published by Cambridge University Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.